I'm going to lead us today in our pastoral prayer time, and I want us to pray for the Lehman family. They are in Texas preparing to be missionaries, Bible translators. You know them. They left not too long ago. We love them, and so let's go to the Lord and ask him to continue blessing them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we understand this message of yours is to be shared, it's to be told, it's, it's for people to hear. And Father, thank you that you place callings on all of our lives to end up in different places that we might be a witness, a light, a voice to you. God, thank you for Marcus and Rachel Lehman and the calling you have given them, that they want to go to the uttermost parts of the earth, to another place in the world, and tell people about Jesus. In the, on the way of doing that, Father, they want to translate your word. What a gift. Father, we are, we are dependent here today on the Bible being in English. For there are very few of us that understand it in any other language. If it's not in English, Father, we are going to struggle here this morning to look further to you. And Father, we know that there are people around the world that don't have your word yet. and We want them to. We ask, God, that you would prepare Marcus and Rachel. We pray, Father, that you would equip them in the fullest sense by the power of your gifting and Holy Spirit that they would do the job well. Father, we pray that soon, very soon, there would be another one people group and there would be many other people groups that would have your word soon. And because they have your word, God, they would learn about you. They would come to understand the gospel. They would know that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. They would believe in their whole communities and families. Everything would start to change because they know what God is like. Father, I pray that you would continue to provide for Marcus and Rachel and their family. God, we know their fundraising is going well, but we know they need more. And I pray, God, that you would continually open doors for them to have churches to support them, individuals to support them. Father, I pray that we, First Baptist Fairdale, as a church with our budget, also as individuals, that we would all be thinking about, could we support them? Can we be involved? That we would desire to be involved. Father, we are honored to know them and to call them a part of us. We are honored to support them. We pray now for your blessing on their family. Fathers, we turn now to your word, back to the minor prophet Haggai. We ask that it would be powerful, that it would be alive, what we know, that we know it is, and that you would use it now to speak to our lives, to our souls, to our faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, turn into the Old Testament to the end, the Minor Prophets, Haggai. That's where we were last week. We just began it, and that's where we're going to be today. It's a small one, so if you don't know where it is, uh, you could miss it. It is so little. It is the second shortest of all. It's only two chapters, only 38 verses. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's page 869 on the Pew Bible. The Black Pew Bible's there. It's page 869. I can be the first person to admit that my life has been full of goodness and blessing. Psalm 23.6 says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I would say I know that to be true. The hand of God and the blessing of God and the goodness of God and the, the gifts of God have been all over my life. And I'm thankful for that. I'm very humbled by that. Uh, and I do not take those for granted. 
in so many different ways. But perhaps maybe the biggest way is the mom and dad that my parents, that, my, that, that God gave me. I have such good parents. My mom and dad are wonderful. Um, they both love me, love me so much. Uh, they were involved in my life always. They still are. Uh, I'm so thankful for them. And, 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 and the more and more I live, and the longer I live, and the older I get, the more I am aware of just how big that was. And how much that shaped me, and how much I am dependent upon them, and grateful for them, and, and, and I could just go on and on with that. But I've, I've learned this. I have learned that my understanding of God loving me has been strengthened and informed by the way my parents are to me. We must understand the importance of parents doing what parents are supposed to do faithfully for the sake of their children understanding God. I have no doubt in my mind how much my parents love me. But one of the ways that they loved me really, really well is that they insisted that I obeyed. They made me obey. They taught me to obey. They loved me toward obedience. They created a culture, a family, a home where I wanted to obey them. I did not want to disobey them. They created a home and a culture where when I did obey them, disobey them, and I did a lot, they handled it well. They handled it in love. They didn't create a worse family. They didn't want me. They didn't cause a situation where I would run. They handled it the right way. They expressed anger or frustration with compassion, with love. I've had the belt many times. I've been grounded many times. I've been told no many times. I've, I, I, all of the things that you can do to stop or discipline or, or show your uh, displeasure, I've, I've had. And yet it was in love, and, and it was good for me. And I stand here today thinking not so much about all of those processes, but rather that they, they raised me in such a way that I wanted to obey. They did not raise a son that always obeys. They did not have a home of children that always obey. That's not even close to being the case. But they did it in such a way that I wanted to. And even to this day, one of the neatest desires as a 39-year-old man is I still want my parents to be proud of me. Or I want them to be honored through it. Obedience in a family, just as a little boy or a teenager to mom and dad, was used by God to create in me an understanding of obedience. Today's sermon from Haggai, the second part of chapter 1, is all about obedience. Obedience is a heavy subject for Christians, and we don't talk about it much. Matter of fact, when Christians often do talk about obedience, they go in the wrong direction of wanting to guilt people and beat them down of how disobedient you are. And we struggle with how we're supposed to talk about obedience. And so since we don't want to be legalistic and pharisaical and, and, and condemning on people, we just avoid it altogether and we say what you do doesn't really matter. And all that matters is do you know Jesus? 
And sometimes we'll create these people who say, yeah, I know Jesus, and they don't care about obedience. They don't even want to obey, and surely that's not right. We have a decent understanding of obedience. I mean, you've heard this phrase before, right? With friends like that, who needs enemies? You ever heard that one? That's a real statement, and it always makes me laugh, but it's painful, isn't it? When we say that, what we're saying is, hey, those people you're calling your friends, they're not really friends. They're more like enemies to you. And what that means is that we are looking for some expectation out of friendship. If you really are my friend, act like you're my friend. If you really are my friend, be a friend. And we can just simply say, whether we can observe whether somebody looks like a friend or not, or is a friend or not, based off what? How they are in the friendship. And there are acts this direction or acts this direction that kind of reveal that. Obedience or disobedience. Outside of friendship, what about, what about loving relationships, intimate romantic relationships, whether it be dating or whether it be marriage, right? We have all observed situations where the word love has been used and somebody with some sense said, hey, there's no love there. He doesn't love you. He says he loves you, but he doesn't love you. She doesn't love you. She says she loves you, but she doesn't love you. And why can we make that fair observation? Because they don't act like they love you. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't do that. Love does this. Love does this. And so we can look and see whether there is love there. And so what we're observing in a friendship or in a, in a relationship is the extent of obedience. Now, everybody in the room knows that we're hardly ever talking about complete, full, perfect obedience. Everybody knows that, right? Shake your head if you know that. Yes. Y'all, we are all sinners. We're all flawed. I cannot be perfectly obedient to my wife, Valeria. She cannot be perfectly obedient to me. My children can't to me. I cannot be the perfect dad to them. They know that. I mess up with them all the time. Matter of fact, I have to huddle them up all the time to say, hey, messed up again. I'm sorry. Here's where I did wrong. Will you forgive me? We, we go through those things as often as we need to. So everybody here knows today on this sermon from Haggai on obedience, obedience, we're not talking about the perfect, complete, obedience. Nobody is perfect. We have all sinned before God. We are flawed, we are limited, and we are in need of his mercy. With that said, obedience is a category that you and I must think about. We must think about it. And I'm hoping that as God teaches us about obedience today, that it would carry over into things like love, in, carry over into things like friendship, carry over into things like a family, carry over into a church that you would think about what obedience in your life does and what it means and how helpful it is. Read with me, if you will, from the book of Haggai. Starting in chapter 1, verse 12. Then... Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Verse 12 of Haggai says, the people obeyed God. 
This is a big statement. If you were here last week, you remember, if you weren't here last week, let me catch you up. Haggai comes to the people of God here, and he says to them, hey, my temple has been destroyed. It's been sitting that way now for several years, and y'all are acting like you don't want to rebuild it. And they said, well, we kind of want to rebuild it, but we're kind of thinking that right now is not really the time to rebuild the temple. That's what they say in chapter 1. And remember, the temple represents not this building, but the temple then was, was a building that they built where the presence of God came. Now, these days, the presence of God is through the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of people. You don't come into this church to get close to God. You draw near to Jesus to get close, close to God. And I think you know that. So God's telling them to rebuild the temple. Judgment had come. Another nation had come. They had overtaken them and destroyed the temple. And so now there was nothing in the people of God that reflected that they had a relationship with God. There was nowhere where they had the presence of God. It looked like that their relationship with God was in shambles, and it seemed like God was not there. And so God tells them, rebuild the temple. And they come up with this excuse of, well, we don't think it's time to rebuild the temple. And God comes back with a very heavy statement and he says, well, listen, your house is looking pretty good. You got all the fancy shutters on the house and you got all the boarded up cedar walls, all panels lining the house. Your house looks really good. Do you really think that your house is more important than my house? He says that in chapter 1. And they're taken back. And what chapter 1 ends up being about, and I preached the whole sermon last week on priorities. That there is never a time where God is not as important. That God is always the number one priority. We have our priorities out of order when we don't have God as our main thing. Yes, oh yes, there are lots of priorities in life and you know them. Even though we lost an hour of sleep last night and every one of us are tired... It is a priority that we would get up and be here today, and I'm encouraged by you doing that. And yes, oh yes, even though you're going to be tired tomorrow morning, you need to get up and go to work, even tired. Those things are priorities, right? And God teaches us that we are to be people who keep our priorities and understand those and are committed to those, but the first one of all is God and his priorities. So God says that to them. They say, no, they're not rebuilding the house. He kind of blasts them. He shows how all of their efforts are kind of fleeing. Nothing's really happening from all of their efforts. And they're they're finding themselves very, very, very frustrated. Look back to me, if you will, at verse 6. He says, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. He's just talking about just how how, uh, futile it is. I mean, it just seems pointless, this life that we live, right? You've been to the grocery store so many times, you're out of food. You work your butt off all the time, but there's no money really to show for it. And he's saying this is the life that you find yourself living when God is not your priority. So he challenges them to consider their ways. Says it two times. At verse 5, he says, consider your ways. And at verse 7, he says, consider your ways. He wants them to take a step back. Take one of those little day retreats. Turn the TV off at night. And literally just think about, man, where are we? Where am I going? Where is this going to get me? Do I like the direction I see my kids going? Do I like the way I see my health going or my mental health going? Do I like the way I 
and living. Consider, stop and consider. And I realize, people, that oftentimes life is so busy and so hectic that there seems like there's not time to stop and consider. I know, I get that. Oftentimes at our house, we start trying to go to bed at about 8, 8.30 for the kids. And by the time that's over, it's like 11. <laughs> I'm totally honest. And I tell, I tell people here, matter of fact, I think there's somebody in the church that's still waiting on me to call them after I get the kids in bed on Thursday night, actually. I still got to do that. And I said, hey, I'll get the kids in bed and I'll call you. And never did. Life just seems to go that way sometimes. But we have to be able to admit that if God's not the priority, we can't just say, I don't have time. We can't just say, I'm just too worn out. God is what life is all about. And so he says, consider your ways. Haggai comes preaching to them that you need to rebuild the temple. And after God says, consider your ways, he comes back with this awesome statement in verse 8. Look at chapter 1, verse 8. He says, go up to the hills, bring the wood, and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. God says, after you've considered and you've realized there are some things that you should do, you know what you should do then? Do them. Don't be that foolish person or that irresponsible person or that lazy person, not want to hurt your feelings, but don't be that person who takes a step back, gets a vacation, gets a weekend and says, I, I, I do need to make some changes. And then doesn't make any changes. I do need to change my priorities. I do need to spend a little less, save a little more. I do need to exercise. I do need to make God and his word Sunday mornings, Bible study, a priority in my life. I do. And then never does it. He says, go to the mountains, go to the hills and bring the wood and build the house. And chapter 1 of Haggai is all about a calling to God's people to stop making the excuses about why the temple has not been rebuilt, but go and build it. Today, resolve that doing what God wants you to do is your priority. We stopped at verse 11, and so today, here we are with verse 12. And it says that they obeyed. It's so refreshing to just read that, isn't it? They obeyed the voice of the Lord. And look what it says at the bottom of verse 12. And the people feared the Lord. Tied into why they were obedient is their faith in God. Now, I think you know that there is an obedience that is not right. I think you know that, right? You've told your kid to say sorry before, and they've kind of pouted and stomped their feet and went over there and kind of with disgust said, sorry. And you know that's not really what you're wanting. You said thank you before when the customer service was awful and you didn't really mean, I'm just really thankful for your kindness. Obedience in and of itself is not necessarily the goal. Although obedience does matter, it's not the goal. It's obedience from a pure heart. And so why you are obedient speaks to your obedience. 
on Wednesday night in our short little Bible study that was really like one minute long. I showed you Romans 6.17 where Paul says, you used to be in your sins. You used to live the way the world lived. But when God saved you, he produced in you obedience from the heart. It says that in Romans 6.17. That God, upon saving you, changed your heart so that not you, you do not boast now that you're obedient. What you boast of now is that you want to be obedient. And there's a huge difference. So it's not what you do, but it's why you do what you do. And that's why Haggai says here in his prophecy book, at the end of verse 12, the people feared the Lord. They didn't just go and obey, obey because they should. They didn't just go and obey uh, because. They went and obeyed because they now had a right, good, healthy perspective on God. They saw the truth of God. They believed the truth of God. They knew him to be a good father in heaven. They knew, as Joe and Holly just sang, oh, how he loves me. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. They knew that, that, that God loved them. And so their heart was turning into, I understand what God is like, and I want to obey him. They feared the Lord. Now, We've talked often about the fear of the Lord, and I, I think that you have a decent working understanding of what this means. But let me read to you from the expository commentary. It says, to fear the Lord does not mean to be terrified of God, but to give him the wholehearted reverence and respect he deserves as the one and only Lord. You ever like smarted off to your dad and you shouldn't have and he put you in your place? Maybe your grandpa or your boss or somebody. I don't know. And these days you really don't do it that way. And I, I'm not at all trying to say that like spanking or beating or all that stuff is, is good. And I'm not like so super old school that I want everybody to do that. I'm not at all saying that. But what I, what I am meaning is in a real good sense, if I was a spoiled brat and acted that way toward my dad, it was right when he let me know that. The times where he had to discipline me were good for me. And so after that, here's the point. So after that, when, when my dad would have an expectation out of me and I would say, hey, I want to obey, knowing the consequence is not at all saying, well, I'm only obeying my dad because I'm scared as can be of him. Surely you know that. I hope you've had a relationship in your life where you get that. I'm not meaning that the only reason that I wanted to do what's right for my dad is because I was scared he was going to hurt me. Not at all. The fear of the Lord is not saying the only reason we want to live for God is because we're scared he's going to crush us. Not at all. We've come to know him as a father, a loving father that sent his son Jesus to die for us. Our hearts are filled with the utmost reverence and respect that God deserves it, that he is the one, he is the only Lord. Fearing the Lord and obeying his commands are how the covenant people of God should respond to him. Through the preaching of Haggai, listen to this, the Lord reorients the heart of the people. Do you hear that? That the hearts of God's people have been changed and turned and reoriented toward obeying. 
which means that everybody in this room should be able to say, I struggle to obey. At times, I don't want to obey. obey. I've got a past of really full of lack of obedience and all of that. But as God is working in my life, as I'm hearing a sermon, as I'm reading the Bible, as I'm hearing about this passage on obedience, God seems to be turning my heart, reorienting my life toward obeying God. That's what should be happening. We turn from indifference and disobedience to reverence and obedience. This change of heart leads to changed behavior. Coming to fear the Lord leads to a changed behavior. Another commentary said, The only proper response to hearing the word of the Lord that the prophets entertained here was one of reverential awe and prompt obedience. We rejoice that they are now obedient and they go to rebuild the temple, but what I want you to see is that's what they should have done. This is their God, their maker, their Lord. This is the one who has been faithful and true all of those years. They should have obeyed him. They feared the Lord. Do you fear the Lord? When you're living your life and you think about what you're going to do and decisions you make, are you looking toward what what does God think about this? What does God think about the way I'm treating that person? What does God think about the way I'm handling this situation? What does God think about the way I am on my job or with my neighbors? What does God think about the way I'm treating my family? Have you humbled yourself before him in a healthy way of fearing the Lord to the point where you're saying, oh God, help me with this. Oh God, give me strength and power through your Holy Spirit to to live in such a way that is honoring to you. All of these things are about obedience. Verse 13 in Haggai says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Now I don't want to take this too far, but I want you to recognize here That God is giving comfort to his people after their obedience. I don't want you necessarily to hear that they obeyed and they therefore earned God's presence. Because that's not true. God was always there. God was there with the destroyed temple telling him, urging them, pushing them to rebuild the temple. But I want you to see, listen... That inside of obedience is where joy and comfort and freedom is. It is such a lie to think, I'm going to do whatever I want to and be free as a bird. All the people you know that are miserable in life are the ones trying to tell you how free they are. Freedom is found inside of God. Freedom is found inside of God's ways and God's goodness and God's plans. And the world thinks we're crazy to say that, but the proof is in the pudding. Who are the freest people you know? Who are the at ease people you know? Who are the most joyful people you know? Who are the people who feel and look like God is with them? They are the ones walking in obedience to God. I'll never forget a conversation I had with with an aging, aging lady that I know, and she was telling me that her grandkids, listen, that her grand, she was burdened, and she said, my grandkids, 
They don't want anything to do with Jesus and church. I mean, every once in a while, they'll kind of play like they do, and they'll attend church or something like that, but, but they really don't, and I know that they don't. And they'll even tell us at times that they don't. They're not interested. And she said, but you know what happens all the time? She said they make really bad decisions and get themselves in financial trouble. And you know what they do? They come and ask me and my husband for help with money. She said, you know what they do? They're in and out of all of these relationships and they, 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 go, they go live together and they go sleep together and they find themselves hurting so much and, and, they, and they get frustrated. And then, they, and then they come back and they're hurting and they want to talk about it. And they come back and they say, hey, will you, will you pray for us? I'm just made some more bad decisions. And then they say, well, I just, I'd love to have one of those 50-year marriages like you've got. And the grandmother said to me, they don't see that the decision-making in our lives, that the decision-making on our income, that the decision-making on our spending that the decision-making on our relationship, the decision-making on our 50 years of marriage, which involves a ton of forgiveness, which involves a, a, a ton of striving together and, and getting over hurts and all that, that those things are in the obedience to God. They don't see that the things of God are the product of our obedience and that our obedience is the product of the things of God. And they don't see that and they're not buying into that. Now, it is another conversation of why that's the case. But I want you to see here that it is after the people obey and start rebuilding the temple that God reminds them that I am with you. For if you're not wanting to live in the presence of God, what comfort is there that God is with you? It's like you're seeming to say, God is not with me. I don't believe in you, God. I don't want you with me. God here comforts them with what is honestly the second time that Haggai speaks with I am with you. It is a promise in scripture. God gave it to Abraham. God gave it to Joshua. God gave it to Moses. God gave it to David. Jesus in the great commission ends the great commission with, and remember, I am with you. It is the comforting promise in the Bible that we are that God is with us. But the only way to have the assurance that God is with you is for your heart to be set on God, loving God, and desiring to walk in obedience. Nobody thinks that these people have God with them because of their obedience. We know better than that. They are a disobedient people. They just told God, we don't think it's time to rebuild the temple. They're foolish. They make dumb excuses. We know that. Nobody thinks thinks that the people of God are so exemplary that they've earned the presence of God. Nobody thinks that. But you and I know, because we're reading this, that it is in obedience that they are comforted by the presence of God. The next time you feel like God's not with you, ask yourself, am I walking in obedience? The next time you're hurting because you don't know where God is or God's not answering or the next time you think, man, I wonder if he's even real. The next time you're doubting, ask yourself, are you walking in obedience? Again, not to earn his presence, but to clear up his presence. 
He comforts them here with, I am with you. Verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. Look here. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Easy as that, huh? God sends a message. People hear it. He hammers it with consider your ways, consider your ways. He exposes some of the foolishness of the way living without God as your priority is and where does that get you? God kind of says, how's that working out for you? And they kind of observe, it's not really working out well. And so they went in the path of obedience. They started to obey God. And I want to hear in closing draw out just a few more observations on obedience. When your heart is set on God, you want to obey him. It's just obviously true. When your heart is set on God, you want to obey him. And so we can say, listen, perhaps... The reason why you don't obey God, listen, is because your heart is not set on him. I know you don't want to admit that, but be, be, be logical. Perhaps the reason why you don't obey or you don't want to obey is because you don't really believe, you don't really love him, you're not really trusting in him, you haven't really committed yourself to Christ. The Bible teaches us that once our heart gets there, we will want to obey. It happens. The Bible gives discussion over and over again about the difference between root of faith and fruit of faith. Obedience is always the fruit. It's never the root. You might remember in the book of Acts, once the Holy Spirit comes and Peter and John get the Holy Spirit in them. They are off and running and turning the world upside down. You might remember once they were arrested, Peter and John were arrested, right? Listen to this from Acts chapter 5. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They tell Peter and John, We told you by law to stop talking about God. Here's their response. Peter and the apostles, Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God. Rather than man. Obedience to God is the top priority in the life of the believer. If it is not your priority to obey or your desire to obey, then perhaps you aren't really trusting in Him. It is totally possible for you to be coming to church and not really loving Jesus. It's totally possible for you to have a Bible with your name on the front that you don't really love, that you don't really desire to know. It's possible for you to say that you love God and you don't really love God. It's entirely possible that a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, you walked the aisle and you said, I need to be forgiven of my sins. And I said, awesome. And we talked and then I baptized you right there. And yet your heart was not changed and you don't love Jesus. It's possible for that to be the case. 
It's possible for you to think you're a Christian and you not be a Christian. And one of the easiest ways for you and I to sort through that is how do you feel about obedience? How do you observe obedience in your life? Now, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes this Christ hymn, verses 5 through 11, and one of the most beautiful parts of it is when it says that Jesus humbled himself and took on the form of a servant, and he became obedient, it says in Philippians 2, that Christ became obedient, obedient to the point of death. Paul picks this up again in Romans and says that it's through one man's disobedience that we have all become sinful. That's Adam. He says it is through one man's obedience that we all can be made righteous. Please do not hear me today as saying that when you're obeying God, you're right with God, and when you're not obeying God, you're not right with God. You know better than that. You know me better than that. I've been your pastor too long and a preacher here in, in Fairdale for too long for me, for you to think or ever think from me that your obedience is getting you somewhere. It's not. The Bible is wanting us to see that our obedience to God is telling us where our heart is. One preacher explains it like this. A true believer, listen, this may be you, may be very weak, but will be marked by a struggle against sin, brokenness over sin, and confession of sin. A false believer may profess faith in Christ, but will be able to live in a state of worldliness without an afflicted conscience, without brokenness over sin, and without confession. Our response to our obedience or our response to our disobedience tells us where our heart is. The church is full of Mistakes, wrongdoings, and offenses. You know that. But when a believer sins, which we do, it is an opportunity for us to obey. And in our disobedience, we obey by repenting. When we come to one another, when we come to our spouse, when we come to our brother or sister in Christ, and we say, I need to apologize. I shouldn't have done that. It's wrong. God's not honored in me acting that way. Will you forgive me? Then that is a sign that we are not perfect. That's a sign that we are disobedient. But it is a sign that in our disobedience, we desire to be obedient. It is an opportunity to obey when we disobey. Praise God for that. And praise God that our right standing with God is never based on our obedience. Rather, it is on Christ's obedience. But when you come to know Christ and you have bowed your knee, your life, your heart to him, you so receive the forgiveness of sins and the right standing with God that you want to obey. So that obeying is joyful. So that obeying is is encouraging to you and disobeying is bothersome. A couple other observations here. Notice that this obedience in the life of, the, of, of God's people 
came about by preaching, came about by the word of God, came about by confrontation in their disobedience. Notice that that is the means of which God did it. If you want to run from God, then do that very thing and run from God. Cut out all accountability. Cut out the real believers in your life that really love you and are trying to help you. Cut out church in your life so that you never hear the word of God. But if you want, listen, if you want to stay close to God, even admitting, man, I'm a wreck, but I do love him. And I want to grow. If you want to be that person, then keep yourself in position where those things happen. Keep those believers around you. Keep coming here on Sunday morning so that you will keep hearing the word of God. Praise God for First Baptist Fairdale. With all of our mess ups that you can count on Sunday morning, you will hear what God says. And no matter how you're living, no matter how obedient or disobedient you are, guess what? Keep showing up here so that God himself will keep reminding you how much he loves you. Will keep reminding you how obedient Jesus is by giving up his life on the cross because of your disobedience. For your disobedience. That you can be reminded yet again that regardless of how obedient or disobedient you've been, Christ was fully obedient. And if you will believe in him, God will forgive all of your sins. And trust me. When that finally actually happens in the spiritual realm, your heart gets set on God, trust me, you will want to obey. That's what happens here. The means by which it happened came through preaching, came through a confrontational. It came through somebody saying, hey, consider your ways. You living right? You okay with how you're living? I'll never forget, and people forget this all the time. You know the great proverb, Proverb 31? Y'all know that one, right? The Proverb 31 about the virtuous woman. Everybody talks about that. It's a message from, it's the king getting a message from his mom. Many women know Proverbs 31, right? But we don't really get it until verse 10 when she kind of goes into that. Do you realize at the beginning of Proverbs 31, she's a good mom. Three times at the beginning of Proverbs 31, she says this. What are you doing, son? Son, what are you doing, son? What are you doing, son? Three times in a row at the beginning of Proverbs 31, the king's mom talking to him is, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Right? You've heard that before from a teacher, coach, or boss. What are you doing with your life? I'll never forget sitting on the back porch of my parents' house, and they sat me down, and you know when you're in your college and parents say, we need to sit down and talk, you know that's a really bad situation. And we had to do that when I was in college, and I had zero real direction in my life, and they said to me, what's your plan and what are you doing? And I remember saying, I don't know. And my dad, just as quickly as that came out of my mouth, says, that ain't going to work. You better know. You better decide right now, right? And sometimes a conversation like that is the very thing you need. It's King Lemuel's mom in Proverbs 31. It was my dad in, what, 2001 or whatever year that was. And right here, it's God telling his people, consider your ways. That is not the way the people of God live. You don't live indifferent to the things of God. Consider your ways, consider your ways, consider your ways. And what's beautiful about it, and this is what you and I need to hear, is that when they got that talk, that message that was for their good, they went and obeyed. They went and obeyed. There is such a thing as Christian obedience. As a church, you and I should be able to say, love these people. Not because they are always obedient, 
but because I know they want to be obedient. Man, when Marcus and Rachel Lehman stand up here on a Sunday and tell us they're taking their whole family somewhere, would you support us? You know what they believe? You know what I believe? There are lots of people who say, I want to go work my tail off this week, make a living solely so that I can support people like that. That obedience is a real thing. Another observation. Notice this. All of the remnant is mentioned in this passage. Do you know what it begins with? The leaders. You see that? The governor and the high priest obeyed. Guess what the people did? Obeyed. I heard somebody say this week. Somebody was talking to me about all the different schools. Somebody made this comment to me this week. As the principals go at those schools, so the school goes. Now, you may not agree. As the coach goes, so the program goes. As the dad goes, so the family goes. Man, if you want your kids to say please and thank you, start saying please and thank you. Man, if you want the kids in your home to respect their mother, respect their mother. If you want the kids in your home to obey God, first, teach them to obey you. Then you obey God. And it'll create a desire to obey God. Obeying God, listen to me, will not get you to heaven. You can't obey God. But your attitude, burden, feeling, desire around obedience will let you know. It'll let you know whether you're truly trusting in Christ. Knowing that Jesus has obeyed completely and that glorious truth that he loves you, he'll forgive you of any sin, will set you free from the guilt and shame and the obligation and the have to and the legalism and the burden of obedience. And when it sets you free from the burden of it, I'm telling you, it will empower you to obey. Do you want to obey God? When you have opportunity to live for God, do you want to step up in it? When you know you're not obeying God, when you know you're disobedient, are you bothered? Bothered to the point that you go and Pray, you go and seek the Lord. Y'all, our church is in a really good spot. I'm encouraged, I'm excited, I'm thankful. If you want to grow in the Lord, seek me out, let me know. We are working hard to continue to put all of you all in position to grow in the Lord. 
If you think you need a one-on-one group, you think you need a, a small group, two or three people, if you think you need a small group or, or a Sunday school group, if you think you need a men's group or a, or a ladies' group, if you think you need something like that, but your heart is, I want to grow in the Lord. I want to be obedient to God. I want to grow in obedience to God. If that's you, let me know. It is my heart, it is my desire, it is my calling, it is my purpose that you would be growing in the Lord. That obedience would be a desire of your heart. And your church is here to help you do that. May we not be those who are okay with disobedience in our lives. May we consider our ways, turn back to God, and obey. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you very much for the book of Haggai. In chapter one, and thank you, God, for the conversation that we have in Scripture about obedience. Oh, Father, guard us from thinking that we've earned anything. But thank you for that simple test of where our heart is. Father, as we sing this final song today, help us to be honest about it. Help us to be honest about it. And may we turn back to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.